It's all the tinsel up. Prezi's under the tree. Turkey on. Hey, hey, take that off. You don't know where it's been. Hmm. I must say, it's a nice change not to have a ghastly Christmas for once. Oh, I don't know. Mr McNasty was good enough to send us a couple of Christmas boxes this year. They're a little big and wooden, though, with don't open till midnight written on the tags. Very festive. Yeah, it's the knocking from inside that's a little unsettling. But, but that aside, it's nice to have a bit of normality. Hmm. Speaking of which, Peter, Merry Christmas. Ooh, thanks. It's so nicely wrapped and annual shaped. I wonder what it could be. Here's yours. <laughs> wow, it even smells like 1985. I can't wait to open it. <laughs> well, hang on. We need to wait for our guest. Oh, we've got a guest? Who? The new lodger from next door. Um... I forget the name. Erica Rose Plum Duff? I, I don't know, something suitably festive. Energizer to celebrate. Hello dear listener, welcome again to Where Eagles Dare. As you may have guessed, it's Christmas time and we're unwrapping our lovely Eagle Annuals for 1985. Woohoo! I'm Dave. I'm Peter. And we have a special guest. Uh, I'm Phil Vaughan and I'm coming to you direct from Scotland in the UK. Woohoo! Excellent. Welcome Philip, again. It's lovely to have you back. Yeah, great to be back. The last time I spoke to you, you were still the course director for the animation program at Dundee. Yeah. And Peter has since done a, a an interview with the Redoubtable Ian Kennedy with you. Uh, what What are you currently up to? Well, in between that, I, I went to work for um, De Montfort University and set up a, a new uh, concept and, and comic art course there, an undergraduate course which I did for about a year. But then a really good opportunity came up in uh, in Glasgow, uh, back in Scotland, uh, to work for a company that is uh, more about uh, 3D animation, uh, VR, AR, um, uh, for film, TV, games. Uh, kind of what I did before I got into education. So uh, I took the plunge, and and, uh, and uh, ironically enough, though, uh, that the comics connection isn't actually completely broken because one of my colleagues is uh, Alex Ronald, who is a current, uh, <laughs> cover artist. So uh, I can't get away from it, uh, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> well, uh, the, we'll uh, be bringing you back into the fold with us for as much as we possibly can over the next episode. So. Oh, and Merry Christmas. <laughs> Oh, um, yes, greetings, humans. Energizer to celebrate. Happy belated uh, St. Andrew's Day, of course, as well. Oh, yes, thanks. For that. This is very strange time travel here. Yes, <laughs> thanks very much. Or I've, I've completely lost track of time this year, to be honest with you. I don't know what month it is. I don't know where. I feel like the end of the, um, the last season of Twin Peaks, uh, where, you know, Dale Cooper just shouts, what year is this? That's, that's what I feel like at the moment. <laughs> I think for many people around the world, the situation is the same. But at least we know it's not 1985. Oh, indeed. Um, I I have just had to scoot over to the um, bookshelf uh, because I actually have a copy of the Eagle Annual 1985. (laughs) 
which is Ooh. I completely forgot it was there until about thirty seconds. Before. How about you, Philip? Do you have a do you have a hard copy? I do have a hard copy right in front of me, and in surprisingly good condition. I have to say something about the 1985 annual. I always thought it, it held up very well, whereas the 1984 annual just fell to bits. All the pages and mine anyway fell out. I don't know what was going on with the binding on it, but the 1985 one looks like it was produced about a month ago. Wow. Same same here. Mine's, mine's in tip-top condition. A uh, bit of spine fading, but um, as always, thank you very much to my uh, English aunt Edith, who... Uh, <laughs> Would would send me things invariably, getting here in May or June the following year. Oh, I'm envious. I had to have mine described to me by a tramp at a bus shelter. <laughs> it wasn't Fred, was it? No. <laughs> um, I don't have any uh, notes as to what was occurring in 1985 or n- late 1984, as this would have come out. Yeah, I'm sure there's a pretty significant Christmas number one to think about. Oh, was that then? I think so. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been around then, I think. And talking at the the point uh, in the Eagle when um, it had gone over to to the picture strips, as they like to call them, back Mm -hmm. in the day. Um, So I found this annual quite an interesting sort of throwback, which I'm sure we'll come to later. Mm, No, the... Is very much a case of old acquaintances as we go back to several stories and times. Um, yeah, Eagle had passed considerably before now. I, I would like to be a fly on the wall to know when most of this, this content was put together. But uh, yes, we'll deal with that as we go, <laughs> I'm sure. I definitely have questions, yes. yes. <laughs> so shall we start with leading off with... Dan Deere, pilot of the future story, a known art by Oliver Frey. Right. Now get ready to party like it's 1983. <laughs> we flash back to photo strip era Dan Deere and Silver Space Fox, Sir John Fox, was it? <laughs> As they survey the Earth Force defences in the Grand Canyon, the last holdout against the train occupation, when suddenly... Frickin' laser-armed satellites blast down from low orbit, blasting the human fortifications on one of the canyon faces. As the satellite orbit takes it out of range for another 24 hours, the human rebels count the cost. A hundred dead and 900 injured. Dan and co. must come up with a plan. As panic spreads, the aliens, smugglers and traders flee the base. Dan spots a shape-changing imp in the crowd trying to blag an extra payment from the paymaster by pretending to be different people. Uh, Basically Mm. welfare fraud by a professional actor. (laughs) And Dan hatches a plan. After checking to see if the imp can impersonate the Mekon and the imp demanding payment equivalent to Earth Force's yearly defence budget, 50 million creds, Dan, (laughs) the imp and... Valden? Valden? Yeah, Valden. The text is a bit uncertain if it's a cousin or not. And a handy nuke flying in a Mekontan shuttle, flying to the satellite with only one extremely dodgy 80s impression and David Bellamy to take them there. (laughs) So is this time to uh, to sound the alarm because the the impression day? Well, yeah, it's it's Jimmy Savile. Yeah. 
Um, we've commented before, Jimmy Savile really didn't mean anything to us back then. But uh, no. I don't know if it's the same for you, Philip. Um, unfortunately, he was uh, a kind of primetime TV star at this time. Yeah. Uh, Saturday night TV, you know, and the show actually ran for, for 20 years, unbelievably. But yeah, it's, it's definitely the elephant in the annual. Mm. <laughs> Just the one? No, I think there's a few later on as well. <laughs> this is David Bellamy to see us through in a scene. Indeed, manner. yep. Letting the mechanised imp pretend to carry out a surprise spot inspection, Dan sneaks off the shuttle to plant the nuke so it'll blow up the next time the laser is activated. But who should arrive to carry out a snap inspection of his own but the mechon himself with a massive escort of gunships? The jig is up. So Dan and Valden have to shoot their way out, having to save the imp when he's grabbed by the trees. Ouch. Mm. As they escape in at the shuttle, the satellite brings its guns to bear and blows up the booby and, and blows up <laughs> as the booby trap detonates. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was gonna say Speaking of boobies, or bird watching anyway, the imp impersonates famous one-eyed Jack, a famous one-eyed Jack villain, before skulking to the back <laughs> of the shuttle with his ill-gotten gains. As the actual Mekon's escort of fighters chases them in hot pursuit. Yes, uh, that was a Donald Duck cameo. Uh, possibly, yeah, interesting to compare with the uh, fantasy funland. Well, I Jack story a few issues ago. <laughs> Someone's got it in for the Disney characters at IPC. Well, yeah. As they flee to the atmosphere, Dan offers to try and let the imp out in heavy clouds so it can still escape. But the little alien jumps out too early, crafting his face into Dan's likeness. Furious, the mechon has his flotilla pursue the parachuting proxy pilot of the future and blast him out of the sky giving the real Dan a chance to escape. As the shuttle clears the earth fort defences and the Mekon is informed of the deception. Sir Space Fox ruminates the Mekon will never be Earth's master, not with men like Dan inspiring others to defy him. The and end. some handy sacrifices of guest star of the week. <laughs> yes. I hope you're sitting comfortably for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great description of this. I have to say, it's a, it's it's kind of it's it's got a very odd tone about it. Ne never mind the cameos, but um, there's something sort of strangely in continuity but out of continuity about it. Yeah, welcome to the Fravers. <laughs> uh, sorry, I actually love his stuff because uh, in the UK um, I, I was uh, kind of brought up uh, with Crash and Zap and uh, Oliver Frey would do these amazing covers uh, based on the video games at the time. Uh, but he also did a, a really good strip that I'm pretty sure you guys are aware of called The Terminal Man. I'm aware of it, but I don't think I've ever read it. I think I've, I've, I think I've read the words, Terminal Man. <laughs> It's actually a collection of it, which uh, I think you can get direct from Oliver Frey's uh, website. And uh, the artwork is is is, uh, is tremendous. Much like the artwork in here, I have to say, I've always been a big fan of Oliver Frey's work, especially his colour work. Not so much uh, when he did the, the actual uh, strip in, in uh, the, the New Eagle itself, when it wasn't painted. 
Um, but I really, really love uh, his colour palettes and, and uh, his render on the characters. I, I have to say I really like the artwork in this strip. There's a lot of there's a lot of daylight in it, which sort of seems unusual for Dan Deere. You know, he's in space, he's indoors, he's in a ship, he's in a building, he's running around tree constructs. But here we're, we, you know, we start off big in the Grand Canyon and we end big sort of in the atmosphere. And, and um, yeah, lovely palette. Again, we're just, in terms of the continuity, mm. yes, we do seem to be throwing back to... 1983 almost and very similar to the last annual yeah there's something about it's not quite right with that the last time they had sugar ray surviving the the crash that he didn't mm. so yeah it, it, it all feels like it's the same yeah fray verse that's a step sideways possibly yeah yes yeah, it's, it's a side step from continuity so does this actually work within the time frame um dave earthfort is with the firefly storyline yeah. Valden is uh, is still in the frame then. Or Valdar, or maybe there's more than one train, we don't know. <laughs> they all look the same to me, sorry. Yeah. But Sir John isn't part of that storyline, is he? Apart from, as you say, the, the photo flashback. Uh, actually, that's a good point, yes. Um, and the other thing, of course, is Dan crashes the Firefly, goes straight to being court-martialed, and then, without nearly a sort of delay is fired up in a gravity rocket to to take out the Mekon's defences. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a bit like all the Doctor Who books that sort of get squeezed in a gap between two stories. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's sort of, you know, something's been shoehorned in and it feels a bit weird as a result. I mean, if it's anything like Daniel's uh, production today, and I know that uh, DC Thompson have a schedule that's at least a year in advance of the annual coming out, then this probably was getting produced, you know, around the time. Oh, of yeah. The so, you know, the lead-in time, you know, is, is way longer than, than, than you, you probably think. And for me, it's a bit of a greatest hits in a way of, of the first couple of years of, of, mm. of there. Oh, definitely. Well, I can't remember his name, but we have met Adam before. It was Mookie's nightclub. Yeah, his, his club. He was in there, wasn't he? That's yeah, he died in a freak Zarkuda accident. Uh, that was the robot, but yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is an element of um, when you're when you're eleven. I, you know, you, ha- you haven't had forty years of Doctor Who fandom teaching you to spot continuity errors. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the spirit of that i guess we press on well speaking of fumetti era dan dear peter oh yes it's an interview dave and philip uh with julian flippenbaum uh it's called uh, photographic encounters of the special kind and i love this this is one of my um i'm sorry i'm going to spoil it I think this is one of my early highlights for the annual because i feel like everything's just been thrown at this as it says on the box, it's an interview with a photographer who provided the model shots for not just um, the Dan Deere Space Cadet story, but also Doomlord ship um, in the early Fumetti Doomlord stories. And of course, that design persists through through the later Doomlord stories. So he, he set some of the template um, alongside Gary Compton's photos. So it's a creator interview and it's photo heavy and beautifully it's in colour and high on detail and it is aspirational i think he, mm. he goes into some of the methodology of of how he puts his 
model shots together and his staging. Some of the tricks of the trade are frustratingly left vague. I'd love to know how he does a laser shot with a with a sort of a spark um, terminus at the end. That looks amazing. Well, it can be done with quite simple equipment, Peter. Yes. You just have to know how. <laughs> you just have to know how. Definitely no Photoshop involved anyway, that's for sure. No, <laughs> no. Uh, and I'm, I, it, it, it just gets me in the feels to know that um, Julian Baum is unsurprisingly a, um, a kit basher. So I think we, we postulated way back in the early episodes that maybe Doom Lord's ship owed a little bit to um, Star Destroyers from Star Wars. And it's not said, but, you know, there are some really nice clear shots, shall we say. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's choosy with his cameras. He's very methodical and he, he gives an awful lot in his interview. Um and it's actually quite long. It's about five pages. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that my memory sort of blends together is I think around about this stage, there was a 2000 AD sci-fi special with some reader art and reader submissions. And somebody had submitted a model of, of Rogue Trooper, probably done plasticine, and they'd used the exact same trick that um, Julian Bohm uses here for um, for a mushroom cloud and sort of subtly lighting or underlighting um, cotton wool. Sorry, I quite like the uh, the first page, but uh, as you say, it's, it's very much riffing on, you know, the um, uh, Star Wars universe, but um, mm-hmm. Spaceship in the first page has some rather unfortunate, uh, how can I put it, uh, antenna on top of the, uh, the spaceship that... <laughs> Look at them in a certain way, do remind me of something else. It has a decolette, I think is the correct <laughs> But that might just it, be me, I don't know. It's it's a little bit battle beyond the stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, for anybody wanting to um, to learn a little bit more about uh, Julian Baum's uh, craft, there's an excellent interview on Down the Tubes from July of this year, that's uh, 2021, for those in the future. Um, I think uh, he's interviewed by Isidro Campos. And uh, more photos, more behind-the-scenes detail, and it's it's a lovely compliment to this. It, it's very much old-school tech, and but in the the classic eagle, you can do this too kind of style. Yeah. Um, but you know, my daughter's at school now, doing just getting into the photography, and you know, as you said, Philip, it's uh, now it's all sort of photoshoppy type stuff. Mm. Now you you've had some experience with. Um, uh, 3D animation and CG. What's your take on this, Philip? From a, from a, you know, I do this for a job now kind of view. Well, funnily enough, I'm just looking at the page where it kind of gives you a little kind of tutorial on how to to create some of these effects, uh, and and I'm pretty sure I had to go at doing this myself when when I was a kid with varying degrees of success you know so <laughs> it, would be, it would be much easier to kind of set this up now because you could shoot all this stuff on your iphone or a uh, smartphone um you could set things up very quickly there's even apps to help you kind of kind of do this you know uh, and light it properly as well um but uh, but you know, I, this kind of thing that this is the kind of thing that got me interested in, in in the career i eventually got into you know this animation you know cool. comics um you know visual effects um i kind of miss the days to be honest with you of, of having proper model shots uh, mm-hmm. because cg sometimes even now is still too clean um action figures in a dishwasher is the the one i've with people flying around and limbs going everywhere and um, <laughs> 360 rotation animation, it's a sort of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I have to say that you know, considering you know how how low-fi this was at the time, I think the final results are are, are pretty impressive. If you look at Isidro's interview pictures, uh, it's revealed that his studio was basically his his garden shed, and and he had very limited um, interaction. I think he he mentions maybe a conversation with Pat Mills, but with nobody else, um, and uh, certainly not with Gary Compton for for Doom Lord. It's 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 amazing that it all sort of hangs together really really well. The interview we did, um, the the interview we did earlier in the year as yes. well, it touches upon the fact that you know Ian didn't particularly know what was going on with the the shots that that they were produced for the Dan Dare strip, uh, and vice versa. I think so. They were they were both kind of working in the dark, uh, so to speak. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, yeah, as I say, that's an early highlight for me. It certainly inspired me to um, to dig out my old Airfix or Revel. Uh, it's one of the two, uh, Apollo 11 lunar models, and, and actually fix it up because it's in several interesting parts at the moment. Uh, so, um, Kit bash ahoy. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but speaking of developing situations, Peter? It's the return of an old favourite from the Fumetti era in comic strip form. And the annual asks, could I, could we, could you be Joe Soap? If you could, we have some land you might wish <laughs> to watch. So uh, it's, it's a two-page mission for Joe here. Joe is called in to solve a mysterious theft of some suede jackets at the local department store. Uh, the owner and Joe call him Soper with an A. But uh, that's just a, a side detail. Um, nothing is caught on the security camera except a big man and Hitchcock alike. Grimshaw, who was on duty all the time. Joe meets Grimshaw, who gets his name mixed up constantly, and gives him a thorough debriefing in the menswear section, but comes up empty. A week later, he receives a call from the store manager. Their own detectives solved the crime and nabbed the culprit. It was only Grimshaw, but how did Joe miss the clues? I don't know. How did Joe miss the clues? I think I got all of them. I got a fair few. Um, Philip, did you have a go at this? Pick up the clues in the strip? I, I, I remember us from first time around almost, you know, I almost remember the clues from the first time around <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, what I loved about it, though, again, was, was the artwork. I, I, I suspect it is uh, Heinzel. Wow. Ah. I could be wrong. It could be the studio, but that, that uh, the, the Gilotti hmm. studio, which is um, Heinzel. Uh, the same, but it's just some of the faces on the second page really remind me of. of they certainly get a good likeness for Mike Scott, and if they're going for a sort of an Albert Alfred Hitchcock in some angles, then they succeed there as well. It's a it's a funny wee strip. I should have introduced this in in, in saying that like previous Joseph comics um, in the annuals and specials, yeah, you know, this is a you know, can you spot the difference? Can you spot the clues? But frankly. Joe and two other characters. <laughs> they they, they, I, they, they could know, have I, possibly fleshed up the list of suspects a little more. Um, possibly. I mean, you, you sort of could probably guess it. I actually made a note it could be Stratford Johns rather than Stratford Hitchcock. But the thing, I, the thing which actually I enjoyed most wasn't the mystery. It was that in panel one, Joe gets a cup of tea, pockets the biscuits, <laughs> and then munches <laughs> on them throughout. And in terms of the art, again, it's because it's uh, the annual's glossy pages, we have that almost Tower Kingy 
well, not mm. quite talking, let's show. So, but there's washes involved that just give it that extra depth and a bit of extra yeah. gloss to them. Yeah, yeah, I think the likeness is really good as well. I mm. think, you know, some, some of the later Joe Soap um, comic strips don't quite capture the likeness of the original actor who portrayed him. I, I can remember a few where I think it was a detective comic comic with the word detective <laughs> scrubbed out and replaced with Joseph. <laughs> I actually got a kind of a Winston Churchill vibe off of uh, <laughs> Mr. Ray Foley. That's, well, there's probably various photographic references used and maybe there's mm. a bit of mix and match going on. But um, Fred from Coronation <laughs> Street might be another one. So tell me that you guys played by the rules here and you didn't cheat. Uh, like you, I I could remember enough about it forty or oh, thirty years on, or however long it's been, to actually see the trainer coming and know what to look for. I, think. I played the rules um, because I, you, because I played by the rules, and you know I only had the descriptions of a tramp, but the local bus shelter uh, to go on. But um, yeah, what did I, I? I missed a few things, shall we say? Um, but you know, as I say. <laughs> The telltales on the changing room floor. Besides the store manager, who else could it have been? It was two pages. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny, actually, just, just as an aside, as a, as a piece of comic uh, art, it's quite unusual uh, for the composition. The composition on the panel, which is clearly pointing to the pliers and the, you know, the, um, the tacks, mm. uh, it's quite interesting the way that this was this was composed uh, uh, you know I, I find that quite interesting actually the way that the eye is drawn to certain things in the panels uh, which isn't normally the case in, in strips that are more of a linear uh, narrative mm. yeah mm, that's actually quite a good point i hadn't thought of it myself but you can see it with the the keychain and the locks even with some of the words you know things that would be clues are uh, highlighted the boy must have picked the lock. Yeah. <laughs> There's no subtlety to that at all. Actually. No. no. It's, so it's really not a good day for Joe. <laughs> that's, it's literally in front of him. But, that, that's, yeah, but that's the but magic. But is there ever a good day for Joe? No. And that's why I, I miss him. I miss him, Dave. I miss him so much. <laughs> oh, speaking of unsubtle detectives who it might be hard to miss. <laughs> it's the first visit we have with one-eyed Jack McBain. Now, these strips are harking, as with everything else, harking back to the days when Jack is a beat cop in New York, and unlike these, the comics that appear in Eagle, the text, I believe, is unrelettered. Um, it's all letter-set. Mm. There's only one minor edit I can spot. I haven't tracked down the original, but I assume it must be from a Valiant Annual or Special. Um, which we'll come to when we get to it. It's 10 a.m. on the mean streets of downtown New York, and on a quiet back street, the drivers of a Safeguard Incorporated armoured payroll truck stare in disbelief at the landmine on the road in front of them. Unable to stop or swerve in time, the truck hits the claymore and is destroyed in the blast, and the criminals who laid the trap turn up and grab the cash Getting away with a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Enough to buy a haunted dream house, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Philip. 
playing a hunch, one-eyed Jack McBain pays a visit to Ollie Hackman, the biggest gun dealer in the precinct. Saturday night special at knockdown prices. Tear gas special offer, $150. These are signs that are in a shop, although I must admit I'm more offended by some of the spelling. <laughs> yes. Although, speaking of wonky morality, the only edit I've been able to spot in these strips is Ollie's cigarette, which has been removed in the annual. You can see where a cigarette used to be. Ah, oh, well. We've still got the phosphorus grenades, so... Well, when Ollie denies all knowledge of the landmine, Jack grabs aforementioned handy phosphorus grenades, only $12 a pop overseas readers, offers not available to you, though, and threatens to pull the pin unless Ollie comes clean. Ollie gives up four war veterans and an address on 7th, 6th and Vine. Jack calls for backup and heads to the address, but meets with a hail of bullets for his troubles. The crooks flee before enough cops assemble to storm the building. The next morning, Jack convinces the beleaguered board of bankers to do another armoured car run, promising the money will be safe and watertight. But but not the... Remember that wording now. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) The next day... Kitted out with a mine detector in his car, Jack leads the armoured car through the streets until they encounter an unexpected roadworks crew who pull out a bazooka and fire on the armoured car. As Jack and co scramble into action, the crooks grab the payroll and split. With Jack's car strangely out of commission, (laughs) Jack commandeers a nearby crane to right in the armoured car and sets off in supposedly hot pursuit. (laughs) Although, really, how long would have this yeah, actually yeah. taken? Probably three wheels, one's on, rubber, on, on rims alone. <laughs> Racing to the waterfront, they head off the villains and, avoiding another bazooka shot, ram the escape vehicle off the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. The primary bad guys are caught and Jack now only has to deal with the irate bankers, assuring them their money is still safe and watertight, 60 feet, under the river, the end. What are his expenses? <laughs> well, well, put a pin in that. But uh, very standard old-school one-eyed Jack. He's a messy boy, isn't he? <laughs> He's free. That's what one-eyed Jack is. I, I, I don't know if we get two strips because one-eyed Jack is mm. particularly popular or because there are strips and they are free. Oh, sorry. Art by John Cooper. Story, maybe, by John Wagner, if it's a valiant mm. vintage. Yeah, it's possible. Possibly, John. It's, uh, I think it was later, it was Jerry Finley Day, wasn't it? Yeah, but I've always assumed that's, that handover's when the battle switch takes, but, eh, who knows? Well, well Willie is, is still a supported character in this. Does that make it an earlier... Well, I was going to say, uh, there's thank thank God there for uh, for commas uh, on page uh, three. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Willie, it does say we'll see Willie. Um, <laughs> even though the lettering is quite small, um, because it is typeset. Um, yeah, that could have been taken a whole different way. Free Willie, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> That works very, very kinetic um, from uh, John Cooper and this is sort of early 
uh, incarnation of uh, of one eye Jack. I, I loved uh, the, the the kind of line work and the, the, the his use of spotting the the blacks, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and the panels. Uh, and he's definitely got a bit of a, um, a Bellamy vibe about the art. Mm-hmm. Yep, I can see that. Frank, not, not be, David. Yeah, I was going to say not to be confused with the appearances <laughs> of Dent here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But speaking of policemen doing their thing. <laughs> what a magical transition. It's streetwise. Chicka chicka. Chicka chicka. Or chicka china. Maybe. It's <laughs> maybe. Art by John Vernon. Script by Who Knows. Who Knows. Oh, right. We're in London's East End, in it. And Sergeant Wise is undercover as Blue Peter presenter and ex-Doctor Who companion Peter Purvis. Sorry, no, he's he's a market trader. While his bumbling plainclothes rookie, Sid Botham... Is this the first time Botham gets a first name? Mm, possibly. Mm. Oh, unless he's CID. No, he calls himself Sid. <laughs> With an S. Okay. He blends in as a toy seller in a Panama hat, oversized flower and polka dot bow tie. Botham's actually looking good. <laughs> if he was Timothy Mallet, or, or but he, he he's looking a bit more svelte than both of them was traditionally. Okay, carry on. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Um, the market is under a curtain of fear, in the form of a protection racket. Uh, we can sort of see some near to wells as the front butcher like wandering around, and Streetwise regards antique stallholder and recent victim, the Pertwee-esque Arturio, with his arm in a sling, with a recent uh, uh, rub up against these. Uh, these protection guys. Meanwhile, Botham tracks a heavy-looking rough sort and radios wise, but breaks comms to go and slap the big man in cuffs. So this big man is sort of bulkhead, built like one of those things, and uh, doesn't say a lot. He appears to be standing over another storekeeper. He looks a bit like Boris Karloff after a few too many pies. Yeah, I sort of got a bit of a Ted Cassidy, Lurch, Solomon Grundy look to him. <laughs> But as he follows the Hulk into a nearby tent, he discovers a timed incendiary device, and Wise and Arturio watch the tent engulf in flames. Botham stumbles out, pretty much uninjured, and Wise goes in to rescue the unconscious giant. And as he recovers, Botham comes in again with the cuffs that the other market sellers identify the big man as Big George, a gentle deaf mute who hangs around the market for odd jobs. But Botham nicks him anyway, and Wise returns to his cheap crockery store to find a threatening note pinned to one of the uh, one of the pillars. Two hundred pounds in an envelope by the bins tonight if you don't want to be next to burn. Wise wisely supplies the ransom and watches his fellow sellers also follow suit. There's a lot of money up for grabs tonight. Under tarpaulins he watches as it's grabbed by none other than Arturio. He rumbles the dealer, but under his slim Arturio has a shooter. He wasn't he didn't have a broken arm at all. Um, and he somehow ties Wise in chains, gags him, and bundles him into the back of his car with one hand. <laughs> He's had lots of practice with his arm, and it's like... The magic of comics. They drive past the local nick where both of them is escorting Big George inside, but as they stop at some lights, Wise signals for help with, to the big man using sign language. And George breaks his cuffs and lunges towards the car as it crawls off, ripping a door from its hinges as far as I could see. And while Wise tackles Arturio, Botham arrives and the dodgy dealer goes down. Finally, Botham gets to use some cuffs properly. 
Some weeks later, Wise is still at the stalls, keeping an eye on street crime. And George is there too, as the latest attraction to the market, a cuff-smashing strongman. The end. The great Georgia. And quite literally the end, because I believe this is the last Wise. <gasps> Intake of breath. Chicka chicka. Chicka chicka cheerio. Chicka chicka cheerio. Uh, although, referring back to your comment, Philip, about the, the joy of commas, um, I think on the fourth page of the strip, Wise reminisces as he's carrying Giorgio out of the fire how his instructor at Hendon made it so he could um, hump heavyweights. <laughs> um, yes. It's a good thing Danny Pike's not in this act. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> oh, uh, no comment. <laughs> but Peter, Peter, yes. if, if Wise blew his cover when he pulls out his truncheon, no, no, no euphemism there. <laughs> yeah. um, and and the, all the stallholders refer to him as officer yeah. while he's inspecting Giorgio. Why, why did Giorgio leave a note out to intimidate him, uh, especially as he was standing there when they called wise officer and carry out his scheme? You mean Arturio? Arturio, sorry. See, I got the I got the feeling that he was he was wandering around, like he was he was he was travelling the stalls. He wasn't a permanent fixture there. No, no, but I mean, before George gets his handcuffs on, Arturio is standing next to Wise. What they call him, officer? You're falling for the old trick of thinking about the strip. Just move on. Dad. Oh right, it's, move it's, on. It's, move it's, on. The, the story's told. Okay. This, okay. this doesn't bear scrutiny. This this story. <laughs> I like quite a lot of them, and especially one coming up that I'm going to review. Um, there's a there's a few plot holes uh, coming up. <laughs> I was going to say we're finally at a strip where everybody's name is spelt correctly. Can we not just have that? <laughs> well, I was going to say the mystery is actually more convoluted than the Joe Soap one. <laughs> but then that's but then that's streetwise. Oh, dear. <laughs> Speaking of putting your foot in it, Peter, Mannix, a text story by <laughs> Unknown. Now, I have some theories with this, but I think we'll just do the summary first and swing back to it. Yep. Dateline, somewhere in the forested landscape of East Germany, and robot secret agent Mannix in his Yule Brenner incarnation, possibly Mannix Mark I, given the rest of the stories, mm -hmm. races through the trees, hopefully not in his undies, as the illustrations might suggest. <laughs> he approaches the ancient Rackenbach Castle, 70 miles north of Leipzig, a real place, and not far from the Czechoslovakian border. Not a real place anymore. Yeah. Currently, the East German Central Debriefing Headquarters, which explains the undies. Yes. He's undercover and underdressed. His mission, to gain entry to the castle and extract Henry Plowright, a high-ranking government official who turned traitor before he can give up his secrets. Using moves that wouldn't be out of place in the current Mannix comic adventures, Mannix scales tall walls and dispatches guards with clinical accuracy before finding Plowright and subduing him, then racing to the castle's battlements, dodging bullets, mortars and spotlights. All is going well till Mannix reaches the castle's perimeter and he leaps off the battlements to escape into the forest below. Uh -oh. Good news. <laughs> Mannix is a robot and can make the 20 meter jump with minimal risk of damage. Bad news. He lands on a landmine. 
Good news, Maddox is a robot that doesn't die. Bad news, Plowright isn't a robot and does. Good news, eliminating <laughs> Plowright to save him spilling secrets was an acceptable option B from Mannix's handler O. Bad news, Mannix's leg is blown <laughs> off and his circuits are damaged so he can't escape. It's going to be a robot Christmas for those Soviet scientists. Yes. <laughs> Good news, two young boys, definitely not Midwich Cuckoo extras, <laughs> scouting around the castle, hoping for intel on their dissident father, find Mannix and manage to cart our hydraulically impaired hero to safety. Bad news. Mannix cannot allow anyone to know his secret and live. Yeah. The, the story gets a bit dark, and we get a rather disturbing sequence where Mannix starts throttling the two boys, one with each hand. And we get some weird internal monologue where Mannix rationalises and reasons out an alternative solution. And using his previously unseen mind control powers... Mannix hypnotizes the boys to forget meeting him and allows them to escape back to their home mm. before hopping all the way back to England. Hop it. Hop it. <laughs> the end. Yeah. It's a bit weird, but I've got to admit, normally you just blow past the text stories because, and my theory is, this, most of the text stories you get in annuals were script treatments that didn't quite make it. And they just slap in some he said, she said, or mm. something in there. But this one's a bit different because, yeah, I, I jokingly did the good news, bad news. But it's all quite compact and tidy. And there are things in it, if it was a script breakdown, that we'd actually see revisited in the main Manic story. We've recently done one with a, a raid on a castle to pick up a dissident. Manic gets bits mm. blown off. He's disabled with recovery time, like in the um, Oracle yep. Quest story. In the Sicilian. Yeah, there's lots in there that you sort of sit there going, yeah, this, this, this treatment sort of had legs. So to you speak. Know, I can see why it wouldn't make a story. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended, but yes. But yeah, there's sort of stuff in there. It feels different to your normal text story. Don't know why. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I always feel like the text stories are, you know, um, unused scripts, comic scripts. But this one doesn't feel like that. And I don't know whether it's better or worse for it, to be honest. I mean, I'm kind of glad they, they shied away from some of the darker imagery. They've gone for, you know, quite um, specific spot illustrations. And again, by uh, John Vernon, I think, by the looks mm. of things. Oh, there's uh, the Carmona one at the beginning. Oh, yes, that's right. In the first page, we've done a, yeah. Yeah, they've definitely, uh, done a cut and paste job there at the start. Um, but I got to admit, full disclosure, I was never a fan of text stories. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a visual person, so mm-hmm. you know, go figure. A big block of text. <laughs> this, it, it, I, I toiled with this kind of story in annuals, and and I usually would skim, uh, yeah. skim read them, you know. And, and yeah. I, I don't know. I might be missing a lot of amazing text stories in annuals, but I'm not entirely convinced. I, I would agree with you and i've got a sinking suspicion when i when i actually read this to review it might have been like i said i own the annual but it might have been the first time i actually read the story because i got quite a shock with the little the twist Mm. with the kids it's like uh uh-oh and mannix has formed with cara for for that kind of thing so you're looking at it going yeah 
that's why it's weird because it, to me it just stands out as a a text story that feels like it was written as a text story and there's sort of a lot of internal monologue that Mannix would have which Mannix does have oddly enough for a robot but yeah very strange very strange his justification for sort of not killing the kids is well O told me to is O perfect no okay <laughs> so that gets around an awful lot <laughs> Yeah, but we did have that thing with the Oracle Quest where there, you could argue there's a hint in there that Mannix isn't quite a robot 100%. Mm-hmm. So, but again, probably reading far too much into it. Intended, than, yeah. Uh, yeah. Intended, yes. Speaking of good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> so, Doomlord um, in full colour here, which is uh, quite Ooh. unusual. For, for Doomlord. Um, uncredited story, but I'm guessing it's Wagner and Grant just by yeah. some of the content. Uh, yeah. Art is, I'm pretty sure, 100% Jim Bakey. Mm-hmm. Um, and lettering is definitely Steve Porter. Lovely. Um, <laughs> Your thoroughness <laughs> is a credit to you. <laughs> it goes downhill after that. So, unofficially titled uh, Servitor Vec, uh, this serves as a prologue to the entire series of Doomlord. Deep in the cosmos spun the natural world of Nox. Here dwelt the servitors, the guardians of the galaxy, never heard mm. that <laughs> whose age-old duty it was to protect a million worlds from the ravages of their own inhabitants. Uh, we open on a nice big splash page of Novus Vec standing in front of the Hooded Dread Council uh, from the main comic strip. The council have decided to exercise Vec's knowledge on the world known as Hejimi, a lifeless um, planet destroyed <laughs> by the hand of Servitor Kel. Uh, sorry, for, sorry for the snigger. I just—it's a bit like Terry Pratchett. Sometimes you read things, and only when you hear them spoken do you realise, "Hey, Jimmy." <laughs> exactly. Well, having read it out loud for the first time, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being Scottish as well, yes, I get it. <laughs> I saw it and thought, "Hang on, this is definitely Alan Grant, at least." <laughs> <laughs> Kel survives and is hiding on Hejimi, as we call it, <laughs> holed up in a fortress protected by soldier robots, the only survivors of the slaughter. Kel was tasked to judge Hejimi, but failed. Novus Vec is appointed to judge Kel. I will obey, says Vec. Vec travels through warp space to the planet Hejimi. I will land on the plane below the fortress. There is little point in concealment. Kel will expect me, thinks Vec. The planet is decimated. Death and destruction surround Vec. Vec surmises that there has been a dereliction of duties by Kel, either it is gross negligence or a criminal act, deserving of the harshest judgment. Vec reaches Kel's fortress. Do more, Kel. I am Novus Vec. You know why I am here. In the name of Nox, I demand entry. Kel yells back angrily at Vec. Nox be cursed, you upstart whelp. Kill him, shouts Kel, and his guard robots attack. Some brilliant sound effects in this, by the way. <laughs> Vec shields himself from the attack. Vec launches an offensive attack, blasting the robots with his energizer ring. Then he uses his energizer to levitate Superman style and evades Kel's death beam. Badam. I have gained but a brief respite. I require a means of getting closer to Kel. Vec then warps into the shape of one of Kel's robots in order to trick him. The robot Vec offers his robes as proof of his death. 
He has been dealt with, Master. Here is his robe. A delighted cow jeers, excellent. Send who you will against me, Knox. I will overcome all. However, Vec reveals himself as the disguised robot. You have not even beaten me yet, Kel. Fazak, again. <laughs> Vec blasts Kel's hand with his energizer, destroying Kel's ring, so to speak. Your energizer is gone, Kel. You're defenseless. Have you anything to say before I pass judgment? Listen to me, Vec. The annihilation of the life on this planet was never intended. Kel recites the shocking truth. The virus I created went wrong, destroying all life. But it was an accident. There's no crime in that. But Vec is not convinced. Your actions proclaim your guilt, Kel. Prepare to die. As Vec prepares to disintegrate Kel, suddenly out of nowhere, a hologram of the Dread Council appears. Vec, halt. One of the Dread Council explains. Servitor Kel has been playing a role in our direction. The task we set you was but a test. One given to every novice before initiation is full servitor. You have passed your test to our total satisfaction. Bell receives a flawless judgment but feels remorse over his treatment of Kel. Do not reproach yourself, Vec. I am old. My time as a servitor is over. What better way to end my days than by helping the one who will take my place? Only one thing remains. Vec must absorb all of Kel's knowledge directly from his brain. Standing over the dead body of Kel, the novice has become the servitor. His first mission, to planet Earth, to judge mankind. The end, or should it be the beginning? The beginning. Excellent. I like that there's, there's already a pang of conscience in Vic. Um, he's not the cold, brutal killer that we see at the beginning of Doom World because he's, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit of sort of devotion to his own species, but he feels bad about Cal um, having been injured in his assessment. Yeah, definitely. Right? I mean, it's, it's definitely giving you some nice, um, some nice sort of foreshadowing of what's going definitely. On. I I do like your comment about leaping, super, flying Superman style, especially with the undies on the outside and super heroic cape. Vic Vic does have a superhero comics look to him. Um, I also really like the nice Noxian variant with Kel. You know, definitely a Noxian definitely different to all the other doom lords it's just it's not a cut and paste with the mask mm. you know with them all looking the same <clears throat> i just find it really hard to credit this is the first doom lord strip in annuals and specials as far as i'm aware yeah that's a good point and, and is it the first time that you've seen the the purple coloring on on doom lord as well yeah 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 normally he's sort of flesh tones or gray with the mask purple sort of suits i think have we seen purple before in the photos or not i don't believe so i believe the photos are all sort of um either grays or fleshy skin tones although when it comes to the masks we have a we have an official ad over here <laughs> yeah that's true well I, again i i made my own but i did buy uh buy one last year and uh, I, I just uh had to admit defeat because they were they were actually um molded from the original mold mm. and a fantastic uh, piece of art. I've not had the opportunity to wear it yet. I was wanting to wear it to Thought Bubble this year, but uh, I think I'm going to Lawless next year, so I think I might I might <laughs> better cosplay for the first time ever. Woo! What colour is it? A kind of grey colour with some sort of purpley veins through it. Ah, nah. best of both worlds. <laughs> I have a couple of observations that Vex ring his energizer allows him to assume any living form and that presumably includes a robot 
Mm. Yeah, please. living, I assume, is is a very subjective. You know, it doesn't have to be biologically living; it may just have to be animate. Mm. And another telling name or reference, uh, along with Hegemi, is uh, Giesebrek. <laughs> Did I miss that? What? Where is that? Yeah, it's at the beginning. It's on the same page as Hegemi. Giesebrek. Oh my goodness! Oh, I saw it. It is oh, on the Facebook God. page. <laughs> This is definitely John Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we have our episode title too. Sorry. So it could have been worse. It could have all been written in Scots. So. <laughs> <laughs> they bother. <laughs> I, I do like the fact that it's um, that is acting as an origin story, and it's it's. Um, and artwork's amazing as well. I, I really like how dynamic it is, and and the colours really pop. And you know, it's uh, it, it does have that, like you say, superhero feel about some of the poses. Um, and it's, it's so it's super dynamic. It's very very engaging, and and I like it all. I think it's one of my favourites uh, in this annual. To be honest, it always it always has been. If I'm not mistaken, this gets reproduced in Hibernia's Eagle Summer Special compilation. Yeah, that's right. Yes, it does. Yeah, well, yes. well deserved. I mean, as you say, the colours and the dynamism in the strip. Yeah, another highlight from which we can only go, Dave. Yes, speaking to <laughs> things that we probably might want to brush over quickly, uh, this everyone leaves at the end. It's what we'd call regular features for an annual. Shall we, shall we start with the highlights and say front, front cover. cover, stunning red cover with lots of explosions and a. A lovely Oliver Frey Dan Deere. It's uh, it's also the back cover too, which is a nice, a nice uh, reuse yeah. <laughs> cost-saving exercise, I'm sure. And then from there, it's 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 the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, your usual annual mix of features on dangerous professions. I was rather taken the men of action um, on the the article about oil rigs. I don't want to work on an oil rig. It sounds mm. horrible. Where well, I live at the moment, um, actually, I, I see oil rigs go by quite frequently because Dundee dismantles oil rigs, so it's kind of kind of um, a bit surreal sometimes when you look at the window and you see an oil rig sort of drifting by, uh, <laughs> which is rather odd. Well, I was going to say, I, I wasn't. Are they all being decommissioned and taken out and not sitting in the sea like the um, ocean forts were in in the seventies and stuff? Um, but it just. It made me think, in the 80s, watching UK kids' TV, everyone's dad was working on the oil rigs, uh, from as far as I remember. And I wondered if it was a pre-watershed, you know, my dad's gone for some cigarettes. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, see you in two weeks. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's still quite an industry up here in Scotland, and uh, especially if you time the train wrong on a Friday night, um, the Aberdeen train, uh, which passes through Dundee, um, is can get quite lively with people coming coming off the rigs. Imagine though, two weeks and you're not allowed to play a video. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> so I'll explain that. I don't know if you've ever seen the copyright notice on the beginning of old oh, videos just, that you're yes. not allowed to. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Captive audience. Yes. Yeah, can't play them on a bus, can't play them on an auditorium, and you can't play them on an oil rig. Who's going to check up? <laughs> yeah. At least um, at least the one thing I learned reading the article is not everyone on the oil rig is named Derek. Oh, 
Moving swiftly on. Speaking of give me strength, daily spotlight. Sorry, Philip. <laughs> Six of Britain's best sports people. Okay, yeah. then. That, uh, that slipped me by, too. The only thing I noticed is the, the, the lady sports star wasn't given a surname. I know. I saw that, too. Uh, is it Kathy? Yeah, Cook? I mean, it's in there as a pun, but come mm. on, guys. I mean, Steve Davis gets something sort of like that as well. But uh, this is this is early Eagle, clearly still very much in love with Taylor Thompson. Well, I think everyone was uh, at the time. Yeah. <laughs> And we've got both on there as well. Diff- different both on this time. Different both. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and and yeah, as so Steve Davis and is it Steve Levitt at the end? Further on in the issue, at the, in the in the annual, there's Nick Faldo as well. Um, just just to cover mm. all your sporting bases. Indeed, because it is it is a prerequisite for early eagle. It's um, it must be said, the biggest float in the world stops sniggering back there. Uh, yes, a, a floaty research platform, the Bothra Two, which I can find no information about, uh, and I wonder if it ever actually happened. Well, it was it was a, a French um, oceanographic project. Uh, I gather it, it it did happen, but yeah, like you, Dave, I think I I found. I found an article about the history of French oceanography, and I'm sure it was in there somewhere, but it only went up to about 1974, which could still place it within Kui of this article, because you know we know that the Eagle Annuals in particular have form for sort of reproducing a bit of well, old we, content. We put a pin in that too, yes. Mm. Sorry, casually <laughs> flick, uh, flicking through this here. Just uh, just when I was flicking through, it, I actually thought that it was the telecom tower uh, <laughs> or invasion, you know, in 2000 AD, and it had uh, been uh, it'd be either that or or it's basically a, a, a post-apocalyptic Earth, and you know, um, the telecom tower has been uh, um, sunk under. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's got uh. ship. It's delight. Post office tower at sea by morning, global warming. <laughs> uh, speaking of 80s klaxon alerts. Yes. Jim Davidson. Didn't he look young? Too risky, says the article. Fair enough, I can take a hint. Moving on. Uh, speaking of crawlers, we have an article about the mighty tortoise, the <laughs> space shuttle crawler. Uh, as always, space shuttles would begin the 80s. How big? Well, there you go. So big and possibly so slow moving that it is an official historical I saw landmark. That too, that was quite impressive. Um, the, the other thing I picked yeah. up from the article is um, t- they have someone walking beside it when, when they're using it to make sure nothing happens. So it weighs several million tons. What are you going to do? <laughs> get out of its way, Dave. Get He's out of there its with way. A, it looks like a stick or something, isn't it? Just. It's like a guy with a red flag in front of a jalopy or something. So, and he's named as well. He gets a Arnold Bachelor, yeah. You know, Arnold gets... Bachelor, yeah. <laughs> Poor Kathy Cook. <laughs> Speaking of women, men of action too, the firefighters. Lots of he's and yeah, hers. Yeah. Mm. But again, as you say, they're, they're playing to their market. And it is a traditional, again, going back to old school eagle, where the annuals basically probably show their roots a lot more. Um, factual articles about adventurous stuff of interest. The only thing that stood out to me is at the end of the firefighting article, there's a, a little thing with all the epaulets giving ranks and stuff. 
which yeah. stood out to me as uh, my son's getting into wargaming and sort of uh, uh, tactical chapter badges from Warhammer 40k. Mm. Um, one thing I would say about this, that, that certainly it shows with the Men of Action, but a little bit also with Daily Spotlight, is unfortunately we started the annual with some beautiful high-detail, full-colour photos of Julian Baum's work. But by now, things are starting to look a little bit grimier and monotone and black and white, and the reproduction's mm. not so good. Uh, certainly in the way that the tramp described it to me at the bus shelter. I don't know what your copies uh, No, like. definitely the back end... The reason regular features listener are presented now after Doomlord is the back end of the annual is where they are all at. Definitely a case mm. of um, stuffing things in to, to fill the page count. Having said that, though, uh, fishy fun. The cartoons are yeah, recycled from elsewhere, but I, I find them funnier than other cartoons of their ilk. Yep, speaking of stuffing things in, Ernie the Eagle chases some sausages on a bike. Um, then we have a nice little photo spread of starting karting, which um, is, is all very good. It's, you know, again, boys' action and adventure stuff. Uh, if you mm. yeah. If you're younger, would have been into it. I'm looking at it now, going uh, bah humbug, young people. I, I, I'm afraid the, the photos don't really sell it to me. Again, it's the there's an awful lot going on. Yeah, I, I kind of like the way that they try to make it almost like one of the photo stories. Well, well. That's true. <laughs> yes, that, 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 there is an element of that look and learn style, um, uh, ed- edutainment. Mm. Venture adventure is an article. Join the ATC. That's the Air Force Training Corps. We promise we won't drag you off to a fight in a war. It's actually in the article. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Speaking it's of... It's much a sort of sponsored... Uh, it's almost like a kind of uh, advertising feature. Well, but yeah. again, I think the previous Eagle Annual had something about the scouting movement and how things were changing there. Again, the, the national service element of the old Eagle... Dib, 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 dob, dob, dob. Piggyback Aeroplanes is an article dedicated to saying that um, Space Shuttle sitting on top of a 747 is nothing new. Here are some examples. Here's some more examples. Here's some more examples. Speaking of of examples of of things of dubious history, there is an article on the jumbo that never was. Not quite the Mm -hmm. atomic-powered jet from previous issues. But um, you get that. I don't quite know why all the seats are rear-facing, but hey. See where you've been. And there's also the obligatory unexplained article about the Duke's ghosts. Where, uh, it's the yes, Duke of Monmouth. Um, who, who, unlike the Duke of York, may not have had 10,000 men. But we don't judge these days. <laughs> no, my English history is not so good. <laughs> Maybe he had, I don't know. Flags with a story. The, the energy house of the space age, which, you know, maybe the world wouldn't quite be in the pickle it's in if we actually listened to that article way back... 30 years ago. It is actually nice to see some of those ideas being realised. So heat pumps. Yeah, I've got two. Um, Grey water recycling. I'm sure that's just around the corner for where I live. That gives you a little bit of comfort. So space age cable uh, is quite interesting. New yeah. space age cable. Um, I was just thinking today when I was plugging in my wireless uh, charger <laughs> with the wire, the, uh, how ironic that was. I was trying to think of a modern um, equivalent because the, the, the big boast of that was it was like a, it was like the old um, printer sort of the licorice strap type cabling, and they were saying it uses a whole lot less copper. I think well, you know, we have fiber optics now, but as you say, indeed, Philip, 
sometimes we don't even use wires at all. <laughs> uh, speaking of changing with the times, we have the art gallery, which is Reader's Art. Yes. Uh, again, once more, very much showing, uh, other than Star Wars, it's, it's mm. Eagle Vintage with a mugshot of Crow Street's headmaster, Death Lords, the horseman from The Fifth Horseman, and uh, Life on Planet Guest. Yeah. I mean, that, that has to be the thing that really dates it. I guess Dave Hunt's reader's art file has just been thoroughly cleared out. And, and we have the second appearance of Donald Duck in there too. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. It's like poetry, it rhymes. West with the Wagons. The highlight for me is more artwork by Oliver Frey. Yes, but this, I can say with certainty, I can't tell you the issue, mm. came straight out of the Eagle uh, Look and Learn finished a couple of years ago, What Can We Raid file. Okay, this is a look and learn article, definitely. And I suspect all the the airplane stuff is from, again, look and learn when it merged, merged with speed and power. They look very familiar. Yeah, there's a quiz about airplanes. There's a, a war toy thing. And there's a bit about ejector seats. Speaking of ejecting ourselves from this conversation. <laughs> Indeed. It's the Collector. In the Samurai's Revenge, art by Ron Turner, script by Yorgius. Yorgius is as good as mine. Mm-hmm. It's the last story of the Collector, as far as I can ascertain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So let's go out on a high. The Collector has a sword, a genuine Japanese sword for the days of the Samurai. Such swords were regarded as supernatural at the time of this story more than a century ago. The sword was already old and worn by an aging warrior named Tominaga, a man given to long, lonely walks in woodland. Sounds dreamy. But one day, returning from a sylvan sojourn, the old warrior Tominaga is spied enviously by a pair of younger rivals. One, Suzuki, covets Tominaga's weapon and swears to have it by combat, and enlists his friend Kono to help him. Next day, the pair track the old man into the trees. Ha! I do not believe the old Japanese superstition that trees are supernatural, says a super-confident Suzuki. They find their target meditating, and Kono hides while Suzuki goads Tominaga, insulting him and challenging to a duel. Tominaga accepts, and Suzuki charges, blade striking, but Tominaga's genuine Japanese sword parries him easily. Suzuki readies himself. I shall try cleverer moves now. He attacks again and again and again, but is forced back by the older, more skilled Tominaga every time. But Suzuki pulls a swift one and orders Kono to shoot the old man with his arrow. Ah, treachery! With his dying breath, Tominaga swings, but his genuine Japanese sword misses Suzuki and sinks into the tree the samurai was meditating under. With great effort, Suzuki retrieves the blade, which is cut through half the trunk. They hear the tree creak with the wound and leave the woods quickly. Soon, back in the town inn, they harass a serving girl for more drink, celebrating their ill-gained mystical weapon. Uh, She leaves them alone in the inn to get more grog, and Suzuki and Kono hear the creaking of a tree outside, and see it looming in the window. But the woods are miles away. It's falling on us. Run! Run! Aye! The servant girl returns to find both the men and the inn dead. (laughs) Yes, only the sword survived. Perhaps it was its supernatural power, or was it the trees? Either way, something made sure the killers paid the price for their deed of dishonour at the end. 
Oh, what a way to go. Yeah. What a tremendous story. <laughs> <laughs> Those fellas didn't know what hit them. Oh. <sighs> Recovery. This is the end of an era, isn't it? This is a, an end of an era um, with the collector. Yeah, I guess the collector's collection's now complete. A genuine Japanese sword. Well, as opposed to a... Uh... Katana. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find it curious that, that these things are explained. We're in the you know uh, in the eighties, you know, every, everything's ninjas, everything's samurai. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff is in, in common parlance to you, eighties school kid. Yeah. yeah. How, I wonder how old the story is. Uh, uh, while it's genuine Japanese sort of, they're not genuine Japanese chopsticks, because I don't know how they're eating with them, but they ain't right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no. definitely wrong way around, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the collector. Oh, it, it wasn't a bad story. Um, and I guess everything from here on out is the Amstor computer or, um, or, or just a story. Fell out of Scream's file yeah. or just a story. Yeah. Although, if you think about it, the collector would have been the perfect guy to turn all the ghastly tales. You know, you could stick him at the front and stick him at the back with a stick on head like they did with the doctor and the the doctor who backup strips and yeah or indeed doom lord in one of the uh one of the recent issues as well oh yes yeah it's it's, he it's just high tech enough uh, the collector he, he, they wanted to go for that high tech audience you know the, the kids in a computer so ah. the collector mm. kind of his time you know maybe he had a collection of old vintage uh Computers that he could have moved on to next that could have made him more relevant. <laughs> well, unfo- unfortunately, vintage computers are anything from the eighties. No. Um, next is the hand. Ooh. Oh wow! Yeah, this is a this is a classic. This one. Uh, see if you could spot the glaring plot hole. Um, <laughs> so the hand writer. I'm guessing actually that is Jerry Finley Dave, but uh, I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, the art is uh, very early Jeff Senior, and the lettering mm. is unknown. Mm. So we start this tale with photographer and part-time possessed limb gangster Luke Hackett <laughs> randomly taking photographs of strangers in a busy street, as you do. Uh, mind if I take your picture to use in a newspaper article? Asked the slightly stalkerish Hackett. <laughs> no, but go right ahead replies one of the no-doubt perplexed ordinary people in the street. Luke's second set of street models are not so accommodating, though. No, no, keep away from me with that camera, shouts a shady, shaded gangster type, flanked by two henchmen. Oh dear, what are the chances of that? The gangster's (laughs) boss is bundled into the limo before the driver whisks him away at speed, leaving Hackett in a trail of smoke. It's amazing what the sight of a camera does to some people, muses Hackett. That night, Hackett is rudely awakened by the gangster's henchmen who are there to steal the camera. And here, dear readers, is the huge plot hole. As <laughs> he declaring, this is the camera, Joe, and the film is still in it. Take note of this statement for later. <laughs> Suddenly, Luke, or at least Luke's possessed arm, grafted onto him from the body of late gangster Luca Mancino, punches out the thieving pig. The thugs flee with the camera, with Luke in hot pursuit. The hand is controlling my every movement. Can't break its hold on me. However, the goons make it to their car and make their escape. Bye-bye, Mr. Hackett. In between panels, Luke has jumped into his car and is giving chase. Luca Mancino's backstreet knowledge of New York is enabling Luke to catch up on the thieves. 
Aha, there is no escape for you. But suddenly a very conveniently positioned truck blocks the gangster's route. Joe the gangster manages to squeeze past and in the process knocks over a fire hydrant. The water impairs Luke's vision and he loses sight of the gangster's car. After needlessly punching the innocent truck driver and feeling a pang of guilt, Luke continues his chase. Luke finally catches up with the crooks at a warehouse. He sneaks in through a side window. As the boss of the outfit asks Joe what has happened to the other gangster, Luke accidentally crashes through a stack of boxes he was hiding behind. Urg, what the? It's Hackett. It's time your interfering stop, Hackett. Take him, boys. Sure, boss, it will be a pleasure. Suddenly, Luke's hand takes control. Hackett, or should I say the hand, makes light work of the mobsters, punching them all out. Finally, after almost being mown down by a car, Luke, stroke Luca, confronts the boss man. My name is Al Capero, boss of the Chicago mob. I had to stop you printing that film. If the local hood saw my picture, I'd be a dead man. Capero goes for his gun, but the hand is too quick for him, and Luca knocks out the boss. Suddenly, Luke comes round, seemingly confused by the carnage around him. My camera, but what happened here? It looks like there's been a small war. The cops turn up and arrest the gang, plus Capero, and are going to lock him up and throw away the key. Back at Luke's editor's office, and Luke brags that he has great pictures of Capero's arrest, a real scoop. Hold the front page. Get that film developed right away. But, thinks Luke, I don't believe it. I forgot to put film in the camera. Er, boss, guess what? The end. What? Um, <laughs> wait, what? You could almost, you know, if you were thought there was a way to make it better and wanted to retcon it, so Luca stole the film to not incriminate himself, mm. or oh, like something, that. you could have made a good little twist in there, but or it was it destroyed just, in the water. The camera got wet with with yeah. the hydrant. But it just feels like an oversight. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a double whammy of an oversight. So not only is the film clearly in the camera at, at, uh, on page two, because he opens it up and says the film is still in it, but if you open up the camera to have a look, you're going to expose the film. So yep. you know, it just doesn't work on any level. I, I don't know what and, and, they were thinking. And not only that, but if you've opened up the camera to see the film, why not just take the film? It's a nice camera. My only observation was, why is there a 50 kilometres an hour street sign in, in New York? <laughs> Not quite as bad as House of Correction, but there you go. It's been a while since I did the hand, but if memory serves, Luca's hand doesn't change Luke's accent and personality. It's just a hand that has a mind of its own. So, yeah, and this one it does, doesn't it? I think there was the yeah. occasional something. You'll get the occasional Italian bursting through, but... Um... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I shied away from the accents, to be fair. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Well, you, mean, you mean they're not Scottish? Luca Mancino from Saki Hall Street. <laughs> I mean, I do have uh, Italian heritage, so I was still very <laughs> clear of that one. <laughs> but, I, mean, I, I like some of the art. You can see uh, Jeff Senior's style kind of developing and coming through. You know, it's not, it's, uh, it's not particularly aping... Uh, Vanyo's are on the main strip. I would say the, the, mm. some of the faces are are, are a bit Vanyo-esque, but really, I can see some early Jeff Senior moments in there. Comparing uh, this to the Doom Lords episodes that Jeff Senior did around this time, and they're very similar. 
Hmm, I can see it now you mention it, in my mind's eye, but yeah. We haven't quite got to those ones yet, so I'm relying on memories of, of reading it the first time around. I think there's a lot of punching in this. <laughs> well, that's another thing. It's two-fisted action, but really we're supposed to believe that only one fist is the bad one. Well, yeah, it's the fist with all the, um, with all the halos around it. Yeah, tingly one. The tingly one, yeah, that's quite right. Definitely not punching above its weirdness. <laughs> oh, ba-boom. Well done. Who's speaking of criminals in New York? It's One-Eyed Jack, story number two. Again, probably by Wagner. Uh, definitely by John Cooper. Again, yeah, looks like a reprint. No changes to the lettering. Probably uh, a valiant annual or special. Dateline New York. On a busy Manhattan street, America's dodgiest cop, One-Eyed Jack McBain, is arrested by Internal Affairs for being a bent cop and taking bribes. You guys took your time. There's a snap trial 24 hours later. Impressive. And Jack is sent down to Attica prison for five years. And to add insult to injury, his cellmate is Randy Cohen, <laughs> a bank robber Jack busted a few months back. But the rest of the crew got away. But Jack doesn't like being caged. And within a week, he stages a breakout, taking a Heston Cohen with him. Assaulting the guards left and right, the two fleeing felons hijack a prison van and make their getaway. Dumping the van in some obligatory 80s quicksand and stealing a police car from their pursuers. Now firmly convinced Jack has embraced the life of crime, Cohen takes Jack to his gang's safe house. And Jack pulls a gun and reveals it was all a ruse. The injured guards were stuntmen. A shootout ensues, and Jack takes down Randy's two accomplices before Cohen surrenders, admitting he's been outplayed. Jack calls for some backup and some hamburgers, because prison food is enough to turn you to a life of crime. The end. A quick game's a good game. <laughs> he's on the phone and delivers the punchline. I mean, you know, it's Jack's world, Jack's script. He only actually talks to himself anyway. Everybody else is incidental. <laughs> <laughs> it's fairly standard stuff really one eyed Jack um, just in terms of our comments before though there were two favourite lines of dialogue for me uh, one was uh, Cohen going how does it feel to be a con man mm. which I always read, read as how does it feel to be a con man and it's like ah, oh, mm. yeah, that's a poor choice of words given the twist and uh, as Jack drives the van into quicksand hey that McBain's no dummy yeah <laughs> I'm quite sure it is a signature move. On several on several occasions, it is to dig yourself into a shallow foxhole of, of uh, One-Eyed Jack. Yes. <laughs> it's something odd going on with the art on some of the pages. It definitely looks like it's been extended. The, the page has been extended. This, you can tell by the, the, the heavy hatched lines on some of the pages where you can see a very clear line. You know, I don't quite know why, because it doesn't look like there's anything being censored out in those panels. Particularly in the last page. I think what's happened, it's, it's, a, it's a reprint from Valiant, as these things always are, but I think that everything's been reformatted and the, the, the panel borders are a lot thicker than they usually should be. So I think it's probably been sliced and stretched a bit. Mm. I've recently started trying to find the original Valiant One-Eyed Jack stories. I haven't had time for the annual to do that here. But just to see 
what the changes and the differences are because they can be quite marked. I think you're right, though. Actually, if you look at the proportions of of the of the comics of, of the time, it, it's been elongated to fit that kind of A4 type format of uh, the annuals. Mm. Yeah. Again, probably photos on the Facebook page, people. But there are definite points where the guttering looks like it's been manhandled a bit. But you know, that's that's one eye Jack and Eagle. Things are a little. Uh, uh, Free. Jiggery pokery. <laughs> but speaking of jiggery and pokery, that's the end of the 1985 Eagle Annual. Woohoo! Peter and Philip, chaps, can I ask you, what were your best and worst bits? Okay. Um, well, I think uh, I was rather cynical in my choices of, of which two to pick to review to, to do the synopsis for, because my favourite was Doomlord. Mm-hmm. Uh, script and art, uh, I think, are, are top notch, and it's a great uh, example of an eight pager, you know, very uh, self contained, but with lots of nice little hints about what, what's to come uh, in, in the main strip. Um, just a kind of a, a kind of masterclass in how you tell quite an in depth story in, in, in a very limited amount of space, uh, which I think John and Alan do particularly well. And I think Jim Bakey's artwork here is, is a fantastic uh, uh, support to that uh, with great colours and, and, and great kind of line work. Uh, I, I kind of think it's, it's one, of the, one of my favourite Do More Strips, uh, in, uh, singular uh, Do More Strips ever, I would say. And my worst has to be uh, the hand, uh, purely because <laughs> of um, the, the, the camera issues, uh, the, the lack of logic, and the kind of odd um, kind of um, punch outs, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, just generally the, the, the kind of very hokey kind of uh, premise. Well, that is the hand. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me I, I'm in complete agreement with Philip uh, the Doom Lord story uh, it, I mean I, I did enjoy it here uh, but Doom Lord when I first saw that there was a colour Doom Lord strip in here I thought oh, you know and, and, and it absolutely delivered um, there's some lovely little humour in the names of course and while you might expect somebody like Bradbury or Heinzel to be taking the strip on of course maybe neither are in the picture at this stage so Jim Baker yeah great um and the hand <sighs> it could have been a one-eyed jack story frankly <laughs> it was so uncharacteristically luke hackett get out of here <laughs> yeah. um, and and shout out for for, for julian baum uh, feature again loved it absolutely loved it mm. we don't get a lot of creator interviews as far as i can see in in eagles press mm. um and when they happen it's usually sort of along the photo side rather than the the illustrators so while that would be nice to change you know i'm glad that somebody who actually had quite a brief time with the the comic gets um gets the treatment he gets here well and the 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 glossy panels really reproduces photographic works very nicely mm-hmm. you know it's it's definitely the format to to showcase what he does I think it was probably quite an inspirational piece to to a generation, you know, I mean, a lot of people now working in visual effects and, you know, film, TV, model work and, you know, 3D model work. And, you know, I think uh, for me, actually, I'll never forget this, uh, this article, this kind of making of, you know, behind the scenes, uh, the kind of information that you just wouldn't really see anywhere else at the time. You certainly don't get a lot of people saying, you know, how did you get your start? Well, I saw this really interesting photo strip with Nemesis the Warlock. (laughs) 
I've got a soft spot for that. I don't know. I, I, I get a soft spot for that one. I have to say, you know. Sorry, putting the boot in where it wasn't needed. <laughs> Tops and bottoms, Dave. Um, uh, well, speaking put of the boot in, uh, I'm going to go. My top is Dan Deere. I mean, it's not the greatest Dan Deere story, but just Oliver Frey takes Deere, makes it his own type of thing. It's there's a definite Frey Deere look and mm. feel. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that, to, and it's it's it does remind me of that very brief stint he had doing the main strip in Eagle, and that was always really mm. good. Really nice contrast to the stories before and after. I mean, I'd, I'd, as for my worst, I'd like to say the regular features, uh, particularly the ones where I'm looking at them going, yeah, that used, that was a speed and power cover. That straight out of look and learn. Uh, I mean, I'll give the one I jacks a pass. They are reprint content, but at least it's reprints of stuff that's in the main eagle. So, yeah, the reprinted, reprinted bits where they've obviously, towards the end of the comic, or the end of the annual... Um, opened a file and poured things mm. in. But thankfully there's not much of it. There's only maybe about 10 pages tops. Um, certainly the highlights of the annual outweigh the lowlights to me. We haven't had many annuals on Where Eagles Dare, but this has been my favourite by far. Yes, yeah, it's definitely quite a solid production and that that's not a reference to the binding. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's probably it is the best one that's been produced so far. I think um, I, I really like there's there's a really good variety of stories. I, I agree, the artwork on the Dan Bear strip is is top notch and does remind me of the two issues that he did uh, when he was painting it in between uh, Jerry Embleton and, and Ian Kennedy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's got a lot, a lot going for it this annual. Mm, definitely. And but speaking of which, we hope you ever everyone has an enjoyable Christmas and. Uh, Safe and happy 1985. <laughs> this is a special we don't tie it into our episodes before or after. But, Philip, um, I was going to say what are you up to, but I don't want to break into your secrets file. Yeah, what's on your Christmas list? Oh, my Christmas list? Well, I've, I've been doing that kind of sad thing where you uh, put things away for yourself. <laughs> you know, people of a certain age start to do, I think, you know. Um, I, so I have a couple of things to look forward to. I bought the, um, well, I, kick, I, I backed the Kickstarter for the Action Force um, book. Oh, uh, right. And uh, that actually appeared this week um, based on the, the, the comic strips. Uh, and uh, that that's something I put away for Christmas, so I'm going to keep that for, for the Christmas break. Uh, and also, um, I bought the recent Captain Britain omnibus, which uh, collects the Alan Moore, Alan Davis, and uh, Jamie Delano run from mm. Marvel UK. That's just been recently republished by Panini, and so uh, I've got that to look forward to over the break. Uh, I also uh, received um, the 77's annual, which again, you know, has a very similar format uh, to this. It actually looks the part. It's got the same type of binding and, you know, uh, nice looking feel. So I'm kind of keeping that back for Christmas. So yeah, I'm um, I'm just waiting to to get the time off to sit down and go through all these uh, presents myself there's some lovely lovely wet afternoons planned at the Vaughan house <laughs> yeah no board games yet unfortunately <laughs> um, for me in the new year I'm really looking forward to the, um, the the floppies for the magazine although they will come here a little bit late of course um, tyranny of New Zealand's distance but very excited about the uh, the announcement of 
Garth Ennis and uh, Henry Flint working on a Hawk the Slayer series for Rebellion. Mm. I have a soft spot for Hawk the Slayer, <laughs> and um, the images I've seen so far look amazing. Excellent. I'm just ticky-touring around op shops and uh, old book fairs and picking up random treats that I can sometimes find. Uh, <laughs> recently found a couple of Dogmatics books from the Asterix wow. range and uh, and a, a, another adventure knowledge <laughs> omnibus, which was always always interesting to see uh, Antipodean comics, even if they are a bit weird. <laughs> now you're doing the Lord's work, sir. Uh, and, and with that, we will bid you all a Merry Christmas and the happiest of New Year's. Until then, it's good night from me. It's a geezer break from me. And it's a see you, Jimmy, from me. <laughs> good night. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Hey, Jimmy.